Amen. Thank you, Andy. And thanks again for a really helpful sermon last week, brother. Good morning, church. Great to see um, all of you. Thank you for being here today. If anybody has kids up through fifth grade and you'd like them to go to Gospel Project, please feel free to let them head that way now. Uh, the rest of us will be in Galatians chapter 5 today. So if you have a Bible, you might take that out and turn to uh, Galatians 5. If you don't have a Bible, then uh, underneath the seat in front of you, there's a blue one. And on those Bibles, we'll be on page 567. 567. Um, earlier this fall, at the start of our study through the book of Galatians, we said that uh, the book of Galatians is like a hamburger. Remember that? The, the bottom bun is chapters 1 and 2, which are largely biographical. In, in those chapters, Paul sets forward his own story of how God has intervened in his life. And he did so in order to say, you can trust me and you can trust my gospel. And then we've been really in the meat of the book, or the black bean patty, if you prefer, those weirdos like me here, those middle, that middle section of the book, chapters 3 and 4, in that section is the real meat. It's the, a brilliant and rather complex discourse in which Paul unfolds the glory of the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And now we've reached the last section of the book, starting today, what we might call the, the top bun, in chapters 5 and 6. And this is the primarily ethical section of the letter. And by that I mean that in chapters 5 and 6, we find some of the lifestyle implications of what we've learned from chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. If you've felt as though uh, Galatians has been interesting but you've not been quite sure what to do with it throughout the week. Well, that's what this last section is for. That's precisely why it's here. The next five sermons together through the rest of the year will be considering some very practical material about how Christians are to order our days and live out this life of grace that we've been studying and singing this morning. Now, Maybe just a quick word about the significance of the fact that the book is laid out that way. Did you notice that it's, it's doctrine before it's lifestyle? It's belief before it's behavior. It's this is what God has done for us in Christ long before. It's this is how you're supposed to now live. That's the way good, sound doctrine works. In that sense, the, the structure of the book helps us understand the message of the book. You see, the essence of Christianity, as we've been saying, is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And it's only when our feet are planted firm on Jesus Christ that we can then actually receive and follow through on the commandments that God makes. So to say all of that in a sentence, God's rules flow from His love for us. They do not form or produce 
or initiate his love to us. This means that all the biblical commands we must keep as Christians, and make no mistake, there are many. All the commands we must keep are not the means of salvation. They are the fruit displayed in lives of people who already have it. As we read from Galatians 5, Alison Wolf is going to come and help us. And as she do, does, I hope you'll hear it um, in that way. So would you follow along as she reads for us Galatians 5, 1 through 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Thanks. Particularly encouraged by that last verse. (laughs) A church, the, the message of this text is that being free in Christ... We are to stand firm in this freedom of grace. That's the driving emphasis of these verses. It is a crucial, timely message for us. Stand firm. Now, we're then told how to stand firm throughout the rest of Galatians 5 and 6. Today what we'll do is we'll be covering two paragraphs that begin to address how it is that we as Christians stand firm in the grace that's given us in Christ. First paragraph, verses 2 to 6, essentially speak to what we're to do as Christians. And then the next paragraph, verses 7 through 11, speak to how we're to think about and regard those who distort the gospel of grace. So, Imagine with me, if you would, that Paul was actually here today, and that he's come and taken the stage, not me, and he's pulled up a chair, and he's sitting, and he's tapping on the stand, the podium, and he's saying, Christians, stand firm, stand firm. Well, our response to him might be, well, how? How? How do we stand firm? firm. There are days that we don't feel steady. There are days we don't feel free. How then, Paul, is it that we stand firm? Well, his answer is, 
let's talk first about you, meaning us. You are the people of faith, not law. That's the first paragraph. And the second, let's talk about them. They are people under judgment, not grace. That's the flow of the passage. Now, before we can look at those two paragraphs, let's first consider that opening verse, the fact of verse 1, that declares that we are free. Friends, one of the great tragedies of American history is the terrible fact that for many, many years, fellow image bearers of God were regarded as slaves here in this country. And that slavery was due precisely to ethnicity or race. Many white people believed that because they were white, they were superior to blacks and therefore were free to enslave them. Thank God that's no longer the case. Amen? In January of 1863, President Abraham Lincoln held in his hand a pen and declared, and I quote, that all persons held as slaves are and henceforth shall be free. That Emancipation Proclamation paved the way to the eventual unshackling of every slave. But before 1863, in fact, much before that, way back in the first century, Jesus held not merely a pin in his hand, but nails in his wrists. As he hung from the cross, he was declaring, I have purchased your freedom. You are free. Henceforward, you are free. Brothers and sisters, we have been emancipated. We are unshackled. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the eternal emancipation proclamation. You see, we were shackled to law that we couldn't keep. And we were enslaved to desires we couldn't control. All people everywhere not in Christ are locked up in that wretched spiritual slavery. But we, we in Christ, have been set free. And this freedom... This freedom is real, and it's meaningful. This freedom is the freedom from the crushing weight of the law. All those commands that we've been talking about, that we've been unable to keep, Jesus kept them for us. And so we are free from the law. His obedience counts as ours. And, as we know from other passages across the New Testament, we are also free from the enslaving power of sin. So church, this freedom is the freedom that we already possess. It is not earned and it's not contingent. It is the freedom of grace freely provided by the God of grace. It is, as we sung about, unstoppable. But freedom in Christ rightly understood, is not licensed to do whatever we want. It is far more precious than that. You see, it is a freedom from, and it is a freedom to. In the upcoming weeks, as we finish out this book, we'll be hearing about 
the way in which it is a freedom too. Things like, it's a freedom to learn to live every moment of every day for the maximum glory of God and the good of people. That's what we're freed up to do. It's a freedom to learn to obey God as we sit under His Word day after day, month after month, year after year. It's a freedom to live not to gratify the flesh, but to display the fruit of the Spirit. It's the freedom to commit to one another in the church and give away our lives in serving one another and being disciple makers in the world. It's the freedom to live redeemed lives, not to merit the mercy of God, but rather to mimic the life of Jesus Christ who loved us unto death. It's a freedom that cost us nothing to get, but will require everything of us for the rest of our lives. And it is that movement that Paul makes in this verse to the ethical section of the letter. Christian, you are free. But this freedom, this fact of freedom, brothers and sisters, does not mean that we will always feel free. It does not mean we will actually experientially live every day as free people. You see, former slaves can pick up the mentality of slavery and slip back into living life as though they are slaves again. Church, we can fall back into experiencing something far less than the all-encompassing grace given to us in Christ. Now, to hear the Bible say that we as Christians are free from works-based attempts to salvation is one thing. But to actually experience that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, that's another, isn't it? Have you felt a distance between what God says is true about you and how you actually think about Him and think about other people and approach daily life? Well, I certainly have. So how is it that we stand firm? Well, the rest of the letter is going to spell that out for us. And today we're covering just two aspects of that stance. First, in verses 2 to 6, we see that we are people of faith, not law. Christian, how should you think about yourself in relationship to daily life in the world? Well, the way to stand firm is to live as a person who regards yourself as a person of faith, not law. Now, this paragraph puts that in contrast to circumcision versus the life of the Spirit. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this circumcision being spoken of is not simply a medical procedure done for hygienic reasons, but rather it is an embodiment of people who are teaching you have to obey all the Old Testament law to be made right with God. In verses 2 and 3 and 4, 
Paul warns what happens if people try to relate to God based on circumcision or any other human effort. If you look at verse 2, he says that Christ will profit you nothing. Verse 3, he says that you must keep the whole law, and you can't. And verse 4, he says, if you want to think of cutting as what makes you right with God, then understand that by performing works for salvation, you are actually severing yourself from Christ. Friend, hear these verses clearly. Obeying God is good and right, but you cannot obey your way into a saving relationship with God. It won't work. He must give right standing with Him. It cannot be earned. It's Jesus plus nothing, or it's no Jesus at all. Now, in contrast to these ineffective, meaningless attempts to earn right standing with God, verses 5 and 6 capture how God's true people think on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday about how to live the life of faith. In that way, because it's where the rubber meets the road for us. Let's look at those verses again. I think they're helpful to hear another time. Verse 5 says, for through the Spirit, now this is in contrast to the law, to works for salvation, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Brothers and sisters, these verses capture a critical truth for how to practically live the Christian life. Now, this is slightly technical, and it'll take a a couple of minutes to explain, but hang with me. I promise there is immense goodness and practicality for us. If you'll look in your Bible at verse 5, you'll see that phrase, we ourselves eagerly wait. Everybody see that? Those four words, that long phrase, is a single Greek word. In Paul's writings, this word, apodexomai, turn to your neighbor and say, apodexomai. Great job. All right, in Paul's writings, that word is a very technical word, and it always refers to the same thing, every time. It always refers to the waiting that we do until Jesus returns. It always means what we do today and every other day until Jesus comes back for his people. It's a very technical term. So hear verse 5 like that. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the verse means. Now, because you are such astute Bible people, a question, maybe even we might say a problem, 
immediately is coming to mind. Here's the question. I thought I already had righteousness. Isn't that the entire point of what the book of Galatians has been saying over and over and over and over? Is I need not do anything to get right standing from God? It is rather a status that He gives? I thought I already had righteousness. Why then in the heat of this argument against works-based salvation would Paul say we are still waiting for the hope of righteousness? You get the problem? Well, that's an outstanding question. Here's how this works. Christian, God made you right with Him. You are justified. It is a settled fact. As we sang about this morning, Christian, you will never be more right with God than you are right now. And yet, there is something we are still waiting for. And the way we think about that waiting is how we begin to flesh out living standing firm in the Christian life. You see, this right standing before God is based solely on Jesus' work, not our work. It is already ours. But we don't actually live righteous every day. We don't actually walk experientially in all that God has already given us. We return to the shackles of slavery and live as though they are still on us. We struggle with sin. We doubt. We blow up in anger. We lust. We harbor bitterness. So there is a sense in which God says we are righteous, but we have yet to live fully consistent with that righteousness. And what's the result of that tension that we're caught in? Well, sometimes it's that righteousness doesn't feel final. It's that sometimes we struggle with, well, am I really right with God or am I not? Is this working for everybody else but not for me? And in those moments when we're caught in doubt and struggle and turmoil and inner spiritual despair, then our minds may go to the fact that one day Jesus will return. Not as a cuddly baby, but as the sovereign Lord of all. As the ruler who will come with justice. As the one coming to set everything right. And then if our minds are going there, then we're brought to how is it that we sinners can have any confidence that when Jesus returns, we won't face God's judgment after all. If we still struggle with sin, and we do, then in, as our inner spiritual lives unfold in that way, and at times, they will, then what do we tend to do? but we tend to look to our works. We tend to look to earning something from God. If 
you put your head on your pillow at night and feel today like you finally earned God's favor because you sat through another long service and you held the babies in the second hour and then, by golly, you went to the dang picnic. If you find yourself more confident that God loves you now because this week most days you read your Bible and prayed, then, friend, you are slipping into the hollow hopes of works righteousness. Instead of works, the way to have assurance that when Jesus returns is what verse 5 is talking about. It's that we will actually be accepted by God. We already know this, and we wait through the Spirit by faith. We lean not on our works. We lean on faith. For when Jesus returns, the righteousness we've already been given will be publicly declared by God for all. Everyone will hear God himself say, brother or sister, this one is righteous. This one is free. This one I've already justified. Christian, that's not up for debate. It's already settled. The verdict has been given. And our confidence today that we will hear that in that day is not our works. It is the Spirit affirming Jesus' work that we accept by faith. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we're already assured that the final revelation of our salvation is in God's hands. Do you see how much that changes how you live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Let me see if I can recount the same actions I referenced a moment ago. So we, we read our Bibles not to earn salvation, but rather to take up God's Word and listen as the Spirit whispers to us through the words of Scripture, you are His. He loves you. Look to Jesus. He will hold you fast. We do it by faith. We do it not for works. And we pray throughout the day not to garner the saving favor of God, but to talk to God about His character, to be reminded by talking to the Lord about what He has said in His Word, to hear the Spirit reorient our minds around God, not us. And we listen to sermons, not as penance for our failures last week, but to take in yet again the sweet-tasting gospel of grace. To have rebar ran down our spiritual spines that we might be able to hold fast against every temptation and doubt that will come this week. And we serve people in love, not because serving somehow pacifies God, but because in the act of serving we're reminded that one day the Savior who served us even unto death will say to us, 
You are mine. Welcome. Friends, it changes everything. Do you hear the difference? We live the life of faith together as we wait for Christ to return. And we do so with confident assurance. We wait eagerly, not half-heartedly. We wait expectantly, not reservedly, not reverting to law or works, but standing strong in the grace already ours in Christ. So, beloved, stand firm. That's the first paragraph. That's a snapshot of what verses 2 to 6 are about. Now, for time's sake, we're going to have to very quickly glance together at the second paragraph, verses 7 to 12. There's no question about it. As you allow your eyes to glance back over those verses, you'll see that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul expresses some rather righteous indignation in this paragraph. In a word, he's mad. And verse 12 is actually in your Bible. The false teachers in Galatia were teaching that men must cut off a piece of their foreskin if they wanted to be saved. And as Paul thought about the effect that was having on the church, his response to that was, Just go the whole way. Go ahead and cut the whole thing off. If you think cutting makes you Christian, then cut the whole thing off. That is what it says. Now, you don't see that verse on many t-shirts or coffee mugs. (laughs) But, But there it is. Brothers and sisters, we live in an era in which it has never been easier for false teaching to spread. Anyone with the ability to connect to the internet can propagate all kinds of ridiculousness. We also live in a time in which few seem willing to call false teaching what it is. Brothers and sisters, in grace and in humility, we must stand firm. One false teacher given a platform can ruin an entire church. But be encouraged. False teaching and false teachers will not win. At the end, when Jesus returns, the gospel of grace will be what rings loud and clear. And all those who have troubled and distorted the gospel will bear the penalty for their malicious twisting of truth. This is what will happen. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Be mindful of what you read. Be wise in your choice of podcasts. Select your spiritual YouTube videos shrewdly. Much of what is propagated as Christianity is much less than Christianity. Use our bookstall right back there to find good books. Go to TGC or Charles Simeon Trust or Nine Marks or Twenty Schemes, Banner of Truth, Lifeway, Crossway. These are trusted sources for sound biblical teaching. 
But above all of that, know your Bible for yourself. Learn it, not in isolation, but in this community of faith called Church on Mill. Work out your, your questions in relationships with fellow Christians. Recognize that you have been given the Spirit. The Spirit resides in you, and principally the Spirit's work is to magnify the glory of Christ in your evangelism and to keep you in the truth as you read the Scriptures. And so as we engage with each other about the truths of God's Word, may we help each other listen to the Spirit and recognize lies. Because false teachers are under judgment, not grace. And we don't want to go that way. Now in conclusion, I've said a lot this morning to Christians. In fact, up to this point, the entire message has been directed to you who already know Jesus. So let me take just a moment and address those of you who have yet to trust Christ. Non-Christian, we want to thank you for being here. We consider it one of the greatest privileges we have that every week people sit in gathered worship at Church on Mill who have yet to trust Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here. If you're having trouble believing the message that we've been hearing, the one that we've sung about and prayed about and read about and now heard in preaching, if you're having trouble believing the message of grace, a message in which no one is right with God because they've lived ethical, moral, upright lives, a message in which not a single person has earned or tipped the scales toward the favor of God because we're better than someone else. Not a one. Instead, a message in which Christians say, we know we haven't lived uprightly. All of us could equally say, we are the chief of sinners. If you're having trouble believing a message that says we are the chief of sinners, but Jesus lived the perfect life for us, and we are right with God because Jesus lived that perfect life. If you're having trouble swallowing that, then you are putting your finger on exactly what Christianity is. Verse 12 uses the phrase, Verse 11, the offense of the cross. Non-Christian friend, here's the offense of the cross. You are broken and you deserve God's judgment. Your sin is so severe that no amount of good works will ever settle the score. But Jesus came. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He rose victoriously. And that message is an offense to your self-righteousness. 
Because Christianity says what you can't do, someone else had to do for you. And that's offensive. But it's the truth. And if you believe it, you too can be made right with God. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, would you go to the Lord in prayer yourself? Father, we ask you that you would now take this humble attempt to say what these verses say. And by your Spirit, you would strengthen every Christian in this room. That their faith would become stronger as a result of hearing your word. And that your Spirit would use this word throughout this week to bring comfort and strength to your people as we seek to stand firm together. And we pray that your spirit would use this word in every non-Christian's life to open their eyes to the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that even now as I'm praying, Lord, sinners would be set free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chuck, for reminding us to stand firm and to wait well for what's already ours. We appreciate you. Um, the ushers are going to come forward and take the offering now. Um, we as Christians, we worship by giving of our um, finances. So um, go ahead and pass those plates as they come by. Um, I have two announcements for us um, as we um, take up the offering. The first, as Chuck said earlier, is today is our Thanksgiving picnic. Is anybody excited? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> This is our third annual Thanksgiving picnic. It's today at 3 p.m. at Daly Park, which is just across the street on College Avenue. Um, just two reminders about that. Um, the first thing is bring a dish to share. Um, we always have a lot of desserts, so if you haven't decided what to bring yet, um, go ahead and decide to bring a side dish. <laughs> Maybe something not sweet. That would be really helpful. Um, the second thing is um, we're going to have a number of pop-up tents at the park to provide some shade, so bring a blanket and some lawn chairs as well, so that way we can sit together. Um, so then our second announcement is that the elders are recommending Betsy Ayala to membership. Um, I think Betsy is normally in the second gathering, so she's not here right now. Um, but Betsy is a college student. I've gotten to know her really well um, working with the college students. She's become a really dear friend of mine, um, and she is... Um, wanting to become a member of the church. So the reason we share this with you is to get to know her, um, look for her, hear her testimony, and at the next members meeting on December 8th, we'll vote her into membership. So those are our announcements. Would you stand now and let's be sent out by the reading of God's word. It's from 1 Thessalonians, and it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. <laughs> 